0: The Theory of Anything podcast could use your help. We have a small but loyal audience, and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player, or you can Google The Theory of Anything podcast Apple or something like that. Welcome to the Theory of Anything podcast. We have a special guest today, Bart Vanderhagen. Bart is uh, a consultant that uh, works taking principles of critical rationalism um, and basically Popperian theory of knowledge and applying it to the work environment. And today we're going to be talking about Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor. And so I invited Bart to help give feedback on that. So Bart, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: I will. Thank you, Bruce, uh, in any case for having me. Um, I must say I appreciate your work uh, with the podcast and blogging, so I'm honored to contribute a little bit to it. I'm based in Belgium. I'm a management consultant working uh, with organizations to solve problems around efficiency, effectiveness, all the things that, that matter in value creation. And indeed, as you pointed out, my approach is uh, heavily based on Popperian epistemology, critical rationalism, and fallibilism, um, but then translated into a concrete approach for which um, organizations can can start up a process um, and concrete uh, guides to to uh, help them apply those uh, methodologies in the problem-solving endeavors uh, that they're in. And... Um, Basically, any kind of problem solving, uh, but typically linked to uh, the problems that are solved in companies, uh, value creation and the like. Uh, But then with this approach that is uh, based on uh, Popperian epistemology.
0: Thank you. And I have to tell you, um, Bart, when I first met him and we started talking, he asks these really simple questions that at least appear simple on the surface um, about... um, Paparian theory of knowledge, uh, or related topics, and then you stop and you think about it and you go, "Wow, that was a really, really good deep question." And I'm not even sure I know the answer to that question. <laughs> and he really gets you thinking. And so I was been very impressed with, the, you know, the the simple and elegant way he asks questions that that kind of get to the bottom of of things that I hadn't even thought about. So anyhow, let's. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let's go ahead and we'll get into Radical Candor. So Radical Candor is a book by Kim Scott. She uh, She's from, mostly famous for Google, I guess, but she also worked at Apple and a number of other places. And um, she has a program called Radical Candor, which is about implementing criticism and error correction at work, which is why I thought it might be of interest to people who are interested in Popperian epistemology. She doesn't have a Karl Popper philosophy background, though. So any overlap with that is coincidence. So um, that's maybe not too surprising. I mean, the entire, um, what Karl Popper was trying to do is trying to explain how, why science works, what the theory of knowledge is. Science obviously grew up prior to um, Karl Popper's theory of knowledge. So uh, he was describing something that was already in existence. So it's not too surprising that other people come up with some similar sorts of ideas. However, I thought it'd be interesting to also critique those ideas and talk about how there might be ways to improve it. So I am going to go through and I'm going to try to summarize um, her entire framework and just kind of one slide at a time, picking out uh, an area that I thought was a really good summary of what she's trying to get at. So the first thing is the radical candor framework itself. So um, if you're watching this on YouTube where you can actually see it, um, then you'll know what I'm talking about. If not, let me describe it here. The idea is that you have four quadrants with two axes. One axis is care personally and one is challenge directly. And then she's using those two, whether if you don't care personally and you don't challenge directly, then what you're doing is manipulative insincerity. You, you say things that you don't mean to manipulate others um, to do what you want. And people will tend to detect that you're insincere and things like that. So obviously that's bad. Um, If you um, care personally, but you don't challenge directly, she calls that ruinous empathy. And so ruinous empathy, she says is just as bad or worse than manipulative insincerity. Um, The reason why you do ruinous empathy is you're hiding your true feelings to avoid hurting people, but then you don't ever actually get them to correct their errors. And so the errors pile up and things get worse. So um, she says it usually has a good motive. You're, not, you're trying to avoid hurting people's feelings, but uh, the, the bend result is not just bad for your company, but it's bad for the person also because they never really understand um, what it is that was causing problems or how they were affecting other people. Um, if you challenge directly, but you don't care personally, she calls that obnoxious aggress- aggression. She says it's the second best one. Um, it's interesting that she, she says that. Uh, because the person at least figures out what they're doing wrong and how to correct it, but then you're just being obnoxious to them. It might cause friction or bad feelings, make the work environment a, a less uh, enjoyable work environment. And then if you care personally and you challenge directly, she called she originally called that radical candor, but now she calls it compassionate candor. Um, and so that's the idea that you're doing the error correction and you're giving the criticism that's necessary, but that you're really caring about the other person's feelings so that they understand. Um, and they want to help. They want to change things along those lines. So um, let me go ahead and turn it over to you guys. Kind of give me your your thoughts on this initial framework here.
1: Okay. So yeah, my first thoughts. I like I like the the visualization. You're you're getting uh, two very relevant uh, axes: the personal axes and the content axes, And you're building like four four alternatives. Of which the compassionate candor, if you compare them to the three others, is obviously the one that 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 holds the most potential um so i'm interested I was interested and intrigued already from this graph simply because the other three alternatives um are not the ones that 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 you can attach uh, a lot of value to especially you know in complex problem situations where there's a lot of cooperation that is required uh, for long periods of time then you quickly know that the other three alternatives are aren't that promising, so it got me intrigued because of you know one the 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 framework is is exhaustive and within the Uh, framework you know the compassionate candor uh, seems to be the 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 optimum combination of both the personal and the content side on that other uh, comment of the uh, second best obnoxious aggression i I guess it's a little bit culture dependent i could see that rune's empathy could be um, uh, you know also a second best culture or a prevailing culture Um, depends a little bit on 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 the company culture and, and the level of directness. I, I know in, in, in Europe, Western Europe, for example, um, there's quite a bit of ruinous empathy cultures in organizations, um, maybe even more than obnoxious aggression cultures. But I agree that both of them are, are at best second or third place. Um, and it's the compassionate candor um, alternative that, that really, from first sight, uh, seems to hold uh, the most potential.
2: I'm gonna I've always thought since very first seeing this uh framework that that she may have missed one thing and you know it's it's hard to have a matrix like this if you need to have five different things, but I think a lot of times the reason that humans don't give feedback to other humans is maybe I would call it um cowardly um desire to avoid conflict. Um and, and, it, and that is never, I've never seen that really addressed by her because I, I think, yeah, I've, I've avoided conflict because of ruinous em- empathy, but sometimes I just don't want to have the conflict. I, I either feel cowardly because of various reasons um, that might not have to do with trying to protect the person, but more with trying to protect myself. Oh, interesting. A,
0: a thought that I've yeah. often had when looking at this matrix. Interesting. Yeah, that actually makes sense to me. Sometimes I just don't want to put up with the drama, so I just avoid it altogether. and I Avoid continue. the con- conflict avoidance. Um, yeah, that kind of
2: is, is, destroys all of this. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's just yeah. my thoughts there. And I loved what you said. Uh, I, I loved what you said, Bart.
0: Okay. Let's talk about how Kim Scott suggests going about getting started. Now, this is actually one of the things that that really caught my attention. When I started first, I listened to the book, then I went through and read it. Um, she says some things that had been bubbling in the back of my mind that had bothered me, and she started to address some of my concerns. And I thought, okay, I got to pay attention to what she's saying here. So one of the things that I've noticed is that people like to give criticism like on the internet not necessarily in a work environment but we're kind of quick especially when we're dealing with politics or you know something like that a lot of times we like to give criticism right we we want to have our say and and we're sometimes quite mean about it right we'll try to get what we're saying out there um and i i've worked with different groups that have made an attempt to take uh karl popper's theory and apply it into their lives, and one of the things that I've noticed is that they have a tendency to really just jump into criticism, right? Some new person is coming along, and they just start criticizing, and that person isn't part of their culture yet. That person has no idea what's going on, and they're they're trying, and my my impression is, is that we often have a tendency to think, if, if we either avoid criticism, we don't want the drama, or we like criticism because, and then we tend to think, oh, criticism's good. I'm giving them the feedback they need. Right. And one of the things that she really points out is that that's not really a great way to launch into creating a culture of criticism, that what you really want to do is you want to start by asking for criticism, not giving it. And that would be how you would start to implement a culture of criticism. And so you're actively seeking criticism and then you need to reward the criticism. So one of the things I've noticed is that people will tend to jump into criticisms and then when somebody counter criticizes them, they'll immediately defend themselves. So she talks about how people are going to get turned off by that. They're going to say, oh, well, they're not really listening to me, you know, and then they're, then you're going to have shut down the criticism. The thing that she's getting at, and this is my words, not hers, is that error correction is the unmitigated good, not criticism. Criticism is the means of getting to error correction. And you really have to think about how, what do I need to do to create error correction, not so much how do I go about criticizing, although she does give advice on that. Well, so
2: you, I, I like that, Bruce, because the truth is, is you know, if you're somebody who believes in continuous improvement, if you don't have the mechanism to, to determine what, need, what, what is working and what isn't working, you don't have any way to to identify concrete improvements that need to be made. Um I don't know if I'd ever really thought about the cruciality of the of the ability to surface these things so that you can start to move into um in in into adjusting your direction. Right. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I also only can agree. I think this is really good. The first point, start by asking for criticism, because it's definitely a give and take dynamic. Eh? People are not um People are not stupid and, and, and they expect um, that criticism goes in, in, in two ways. And, and especially for managers, you better start it up yourself. You have the authority and it would be a big mistake to use that authority and, and, and start launching criticism in, in a one direction fashion uh, right away. Um, And so really balancing the asking for criticism and the giving of criticism, I think that's one of the key criteria for this thing to ever start up in the right fashion and and be able to grow into some dynamic that is really fruitful, that is is human, and that is eventually um, getting into optimum error correction um, at some point. So, yeah, really, there has to be give and take.
0: All right. The next point she says, give more praise than criticism. I actually have some concerns with this one. And let me, I don't really disagree with her. It's easy to see that you really should give more praise than criticism. So it's not, I'm not taking exception with the point she's making. I think it's really hard. And I think it's one of those things. She does spend some time talking about how to try to balance that better. And she's the first one who I've seen say this, who admits that if you just try to turn it into something mechanical, it's not going to work, right? If you, if you, you know, some people give advice, like, make sure you give three praise for every one criticism. Well, she, she gives these funny examples of, you know, you're really punctual, but your work is terrible, you know, and it's becomes silly at some point, because you're you're trying to match some number. So I I agree with the idea, we should give more praise than criticism. But I I also think that that is a particularly difficult thing to implement. in any way mechanical. It's almost like a character change is required to really get to be the type of person who you notice good things to say about people and to praise and to give them feedback. She does talk about, though, how important praise is as feedback, which is something that I think often gets overlooked. It's not just a matter of I'm trying to give you praise so that you'll take criticism, and the criticism was what matters. It's a matter of praise is really important in telling people, this is what went right. And this is, this is what we need to do more of. And that this plays as much a role in error correction and um, improving your systems in your, in your business as the criticism does. So yeah,
2: I, I, I think that that's a pretty important point, you know, not, not a, uh, praise as a check mark, but noticing the behaviors that you want to see more of, getting yourself into a mindset where you're looking for behaviors that exemplify the the kinds of things you want to see more of. And then, you know, and acknowledging them. I do this with my children all the time, trying to look at when make, making sure that when they are doing the thing that I want them to do, they know that I see it and that I appreciate it and that I acknowledge that that's a choice that they've made. And that's, a, that's, you know, that's, if anything, practice is being is going through the act of doing something and then being rewarded by doing it better even if there's not actually praise in there but it i think it's so critical to have a culture of of praise if you also want to have a culture of criticism
1: all right yeah yeah um fully agree with that cameo um the thing i wanted to say about praise is uh, I'm not sure whether you have to give more or less than criticism, that's another question, but along the lines of what you've commented, praise uh, has to be about um, how somebody did something, and it shouldn't be about the outcome or the result, uh, because if, if it's the outcome or the result, you could have read it in some kind of management report and then just praise the team or the persons who were responsible uh, by saying, wow, guys, you, you've, you've achieved a great outcome. Um, But it could be that as a manager, you you didn't show any interest in how they came to that result. And people appreciate the praise, as as like you said, with the behaviors. The behaviors are also the way in which that we come to results. And it it shows the attention that the manager pays to um, his or her um, employees. Uh, And too often, I see that there's maybe some praise, but it's only about this outcome or this particular KPI that has been reached and and the manager has no clue who actually reached it, uh, which ID contributed to that realization, of whom that ID was, how that ID ID evolved through cooperation. None of all of those things are known to the manager and when he or she praises then the, the result, yeah, the team even knows that she didn't or he didn't know. And and so that's very important in praise. It has to be about behaviors and about how a certain result was achieved. And that's real strong praise. That is what people will recognize. That is where they will get motivation from. And not so much about, you know, just uh, ticking the box or getting some kind of targeted results um, that is realized.
0: You know, I really agree with that. I, I think about how often I get praised for outcomes and how little it actually means to me. (laughs) <laughs> because you, you get to the end of the project and people say, oh, you know, you did a great job with that project. It, you know, it worked out well or whatever. And they don't really know what happened on the project. I know that, right? They, they have no idea what we did or what, how we went about it or what we did well and what we didn't do well it does come across very superficial at that point. So it, yeah, you're, you're saying more than that. I'm not trying to say and boil it down, what you're saying down to just that, but that's definitely something that I have noticed is that it comes across very superficial yeah. if, if you're just praising some sort of outcome and then you had played no no role. I have no understanding of how that outcome came across. Yeah.
2: Well, also if you're only pra- uh, praising an outcome, that pr- likely means that you're only praising very occasionally. Um, because the real work happens every day and you know if you weren't hearing from somebody that said you know I liked how you organized this particular stand-up today I, I felt like it was super efficient and I really appreciated how you got everything you know running together then you have somebody who's looking at you in real time as compared to looking you at you like kind of like Bart said you know from this upper management umbrella of after everything's done oh good job um you know as compared to actually caring about the day-to-day and and which is where the real challenges are
1: yeah
0: so i, I have a confession here are you guys <laughs> are, are you guys familiar with the book the one minute manager oh yeah so um I I, i'm i'm not going to try to slam on the book let me just say that that book is not very helpful or wasn't to me um even though it's trying to say some very similar things to what kim scott is saying it talks about the one minute praise and the one minute criticism, right? That you, the idea is and you're supposed to, when you take on someone and you're their manager, you're supposed to first pay lots of attention to them, find something to praise. And then you, now that you've done this praise, now you can also give them negative feedback. And then you're supposed to always keep it to like one minute or less. And you just tell them, this is what I need you to change. And what I found I, I tried to implement this. I was very young. I was a manager, probably far too young. Um, and I tried, got this book. I was given this book. This is a great book. You need to need to follow. I was told that by my company. So I, I really tried to follow it. And first of all, it, it was really hard to come it, to find praise because the way he describes it was so superficial. You just find something, and it felt so much like just a checkbox. It was awkward. And then it was, so I tried to do criticism. I'm not upset. I'm not yelling. I'm not mad. I'm just, okay, do this differently. And I found people just disliked me, right? I mean, they they would say they wanted stuff like that, but it it just wasn't effective. And when I look back over my initial attempts to make that work, the thing that was really missing was that the book doesn't help you understand the need to really care about the person, right? It's trying to make it so mechanical, uh, or at least that was the way I interpreted it at the time. Um And the thing that was missing was that um, people really do need things inside of the concept of a relationship that, that you have this work relationship with them, and it's a personal relationship as well. This is something Kim Scott brings out that you bring your whole self to work right um, and i've always felt like that that approach just didn't work and I, I think instead what I would say today is he's not getting deep enough into how you actually make praise and criticism effective. Right. He's, he's talking about trying to keep it short and things like that. And that's maybe that's good advice, but he's missing something deeper.
1: Yeah. It's procedural.
0: this
2: This is interesting to me, Bruce, because I would say I had almost the opposite experience. So I, my very first management job, i I was 19, I worked at a, a bagel shop and I, it was my very first time managing people and they gave everybody the one minute manager, but they also had a, had essentially built their, so many of their processes because they had all these young managers running the, the, their bagel company and they had very, like a way that they trained us to use it and they made the point for us that the, that the critical thing of the one minute manager isn't actually about praise or criticism or you know or that sandwiching concept it's the step that's before that which is the step of setting a clear, clear expectation of, of the output that you're trying to, to achieve interesting um, and the behavior that you that that you expect because then the shortness of the feedback is because you are giving autonomy to the person that you're giving feedback too, because when you set the clear expectation, you also between the two of you had a kind of a contract that you are treating them like an adult who can do these things without needing a lot of help so that you've set this expectation and now when you're seeing problems, it's easy to give them very simple course corrections because the expectations have already been clear and this kind of heightened level of autonomy is expected. And we used it that way and we were, you know, kind of trained on how to just really quickly course correct, you know, and it's a kind of a different thing to manage a bunch of like college students who are feeding people bagels, but they also had really, really high standards of what they expected for us. Like the the stores were spotless, the people were super friendly, like it was really, really well run. And maybe the challenges that you had, I didn't have... Partially just because I'm super gregarious, you know, and I have this tendency to like really, I'm, I'm super lovey, lovey, you know, a little bit. So, so maybe that empathy that, and, and that caring that Kim talks about is just kind of part of my personality. And so that wasn't a challenge for me, but I, I feel like so much of my success as a manager over, over the years is because of that framework that I had established with the one minute manager.
0: Interesting. I I can see, I think what you're getting at is that they tied it into a lot of other institutions that existed for their environment. right? And and I can see how it it could be very useful in that circumstance. Kim Scott talks about implementing institutions later on, and we'll get to that. But it's interesting that uh, the idea of it's tied to autonomy and things like that, that I can see how people would like that, right? It's right. making it outcome-based. You know, don't tell me exactly what to do, things like that. I, I right. think you like that. Um, any other, well, I guess there's two other things that she mentioned that I, I put on this slide. Um, getting to know your direct reports and what motivates them and helping do the work by rolling up your sleeves. So if you're giving criticism, you're trying to actually, when possible, help, right? So that it's not just... Yeah. You, you've done something wrong but here like how can we help and she gives the example of she was in a meeting where she did a presentation and she said um too much and her manager um I say um look at that <laughs> uh, her, her manager sa- said afterwards I noticed you said um too much and she kind of dismissed it finally the manager gets more direct and says actually I, I don't think you come across well when you do that can I give you coaching and she directs her to go get coaching within the company, and she's going to pay for it. Now, maybe not every company can afford to give coaching or something like that, but it's a good example of how she coupled the criticism with a, a real desire to help that showed that she cared. Right? This is Kim Scott's manager. Um, I think it was Cheryl Sandberg. It was Cheryl Sandberg in the story. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, and then I liked. I also really liked the the fact that she emphasizes it's your job as the manager to get to know your direct reports. This isn't about baking cookies. You're trying to figure out what are their life goals. And then she gives examples of tying in their life goals. Hey, look, how about why give you this position? Because this is going to help you in your future job that I know you're interested in. You know, you wanted, I can't remember what the specific example was, but it had nothing to do with the current job. If we give you this job, that'll start giving you the skills you need to do what it is that your ultimate career goals are. And I really like that because then that would definitely allow you to be far more effective as a manager. So I I felt that was good. Any thoughts on that before I move on?
1: Um, Yeah, I would add on the the previous last point, uh, getting to know your direct report one way to do it. And it's linked to what you've mentioned about me in the introduction is basically ask questions is um, asking um, how, he or she should or, or would like to solve a problem or what problems uh he or she encounters already going into the depths of it a little bit because it's only by them um, bringing insights them bringing their ideas them bringing their aspirations and goals that you can start really understanding and working with them um and so that would be the i guess the way uh that i would prefer to get to know them is is It's really by asking questions and and see what comes up, see what problems they encounter, what kind of ideas they have, um, and how they want to pursue them, um, all those um, kinds of things. So it could, for me, be relatively close to the the work environment, to the real and uh, urgent or concrete problems. Um. Interesting, yes. Okay. All right. Now, why do you need to care? This
0: is something that she spends some time talking about. Typically, when we talk about the need to care about people, particularly in the context of needing to give them criticism, we think in terms of well, they'll accept the criticism better. Um, and then she does bring out, look, if if you're in an environment where you get punished for mistakes, then people are going to hide their mistakes. That that's what you're incentivizing them to do. And so the need to care and need to make it so that criticism isn't about punishment. Uh, I, those are kind of the obvious answers to why you need to care. She goes one further, though, and let me kind of pitch this to you guys and see what, what you think. She talks about the need to achieve more collaboratively, that a bunch of people working on something aren't um, individually aren't going to be as effective as everybody kind of understanding everybody else's mind and knowing them and then working as a single organism, so to speak. Um, and incorporating, she calls it incorporating their thinking into yours and vice versa, and that that's not possible without caring. And so you get more done. That's the goal of your company. The goal of your company. The reason why a corporation exists is you're trying to be this super organism, so to speak, that is going to get more done than people individually could get done. So it was in that context that she said that's why caring is so important. is so that you can incorporate your thinking with each other into each other's minds
1: yeah i think definitely um relevant um especially in 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 highly corro- collaborative settings um which are probably most of the settings uh, where where ideas uh confront and 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 clash sometimes and where um you know attention for um people and and their ideas is 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 the way to get them more aligned and, cre- and create more co- cooperation um, because people touch each other eh? there's no way of uh, separating all jobs uh, perfectly uh, into every uh, individual and then you know get them going and and never interact anymore. So interaction is continuous and and unavoidable so um, yeah it's 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 definitely true what's that, what what what's saying here.
2: So Bruce, the people will not admit mistakes if they think they'll be punished. I don't believe she doesn't, Kim doesn't talk a, a lot about, about that. Does she? I I don't remember her making much of a. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. I think she says it in one line somewhere. And that's probably my interpretation of what she said.
2: Because, you know, I always, it, I think it's always a little bit of a balancing act when you're a manager and you know, to, you have to, I, punishment, some people will view even being criticized as punishment. as punishment, right. You know, and, and truthfully, if you're in a management situation, you do have to be willing to, I, pun, I don't like the word punish, discipline, because otherwise you, you can't have, I think that there's a, like a culture of accountability. If, if people see other people kind of getting away with behavior that's, very far beyond the pale. I mean, there are definitely situations where you need to move beyond even criticism into, into like real solid course correction where, where you, you are disciplining somebody for a behavior that, that is, I don't want to say dangerous, but just, you know, excessive, you know, her example with Sheryl Sandberg, correcting her about how much she says, um, you know, that's a, that was, that was good advice for, to, to make her into a better person and make her into a better person within the organization. But that's a big difference from somebody who's maybe regularly not submitting critical things or not meeting timelines or, you know. There, I think there's a variety of different levels and, and it's just kind of interesting to try and find that balance.
0: So l- let me take a little bit of a, a tangent here something that I've, I've noticed, (laughs) and this is, this is a negative example, not a positive example. Something I've noticed is um, the, the, the whole, we call it the blame game, right? Where something has gone wrong and everybody blames everybody else. Right. And um, it's interesting, but I I have this intuition that the reason why the blame game exists is because it's spreading blame around in such a way that nobody gets in trouble. (laughs) and i've seen it happen so many times i had a friend pointed out to me where uh, there was this big mistake made and some hardware was bought that wasn't necessary and everybody immediately started blaming everybody else when the ceo got upset and the ceo just gave up trying to figure out who to blame and moved on <laughs> and hmm. and i i i kind of believe that's what the blame game is right if you have an environment where um you're going to get over uh, where, where somebody's seeking someone to punish and really everybody made mistakes that led to this point that everyone will just simply spread the blame out and then there'll be no one to blame. And I, I'm not in any way advocating this. I'm just saying this <laughs> is something that I've, I've seen. And I've kind of had this intuition that the issue there is that we don't, I mean, like you, you, would, you could imagine a better environment where people kind of stand up and say, look, I want to do what's right for the company. I shouldn't have done this. They're, they're not trying to take the whole blame for whatever that final bad outcome was. They're talking about what mistakes they made that helped lead to that. It's very uncommon that one person is at fault for a bad outcome, right? And so instead of having the blame game, you would have people standing up trying to figure out how to fix it. And that would be a far more ideal circumstance. And I think a lot of corporate environments just don't have that environment, right? They don't have the, what Agile calls safety, to be able to stand up and talk about what mistakes that they made and what, what to fix. And so instead you end up with the blame game, which to some degree kind of adversarially gets you to the same spot where nobody gets in trouble and we've all blamed each other and now <laughs> we're yeah. all angry with each other, which is a negative outcome.
1: Yeah, the, the blame game I've seen a lot as well. Um, I don't know whether it's a concerted or a cooperative effort, I, I think it's culture. Some companies, um, yeah they have they have a blame culture um, where people uh, consistently consistently are afraid to speak up are afraid to go outside of their area of expertise and um, therefore you know defend uh, all of what they 're doing uh, inside their area of responsibility and refrain from any engagements outside of their area of responsibility and it's a collective it's a collective thing everybody does that so you end up indeed with a with a collective um culture of of uh, blaming somebody else um and you see it um yeah you see it often It, it can be induced by the management style um if it has been repressive in the past if if the focus on um Content expertise is very strong, and 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 whether there's not a lot of experience or learning experience on new new problems or or more cooperation, then these type of cultures grow into um, grow into companies, and 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 then it becomes indeed some kind of collective phenomenon.
0: The next thing that I'm going to cover from her book is what she calls the getting things done process. Um, and let me just kind of describe it briefly, and this maybe this will be our last subject for the day, and we can pick this up the next time. Um, so, one of the things that she talks about is this framework that she has for how you get things done. She gives this example of where she came into Google, she was kind of the adult in the room because everybody else was much younger than her, and so she could see what was wrong. She implemented a change, and everybody on her team started quitting, and even though what she implemented was theoretically very good stuff. People didn't like it. And so they started quitting. And in Google, the manager can't stop you from switching departments. And when I say quitting, I don't mean quitting Google, but switching to a different department. So they didn't have to work with her. And the, Google has a, a culture and environment where they, they allow people to do that. And the manager can't stop them. Um, so she went and talked to her boss who may have been Cheryl Sandberg, but I don't remember who it was. And she said, look, what you're doing is the right things. But you didn't go about the process. You, you just just implemented it. And so, of course, people disliked it. So she talks about this idea of this getting thing done process where it starts with you listen. Um, she, she mentions that different people have different listening styles. So she mentions the idea of quiet listening where you, you just listen and you don't react and it causes people to talk more. Or loud listening where you insist on a response. You, you put your ideas out there. And then you, you say, look, I'm not leaving here till I have feedback. And you make people uncom- maybe even uncomfortable, but you force them to give you feedback. Um, and then after you've listened and you've kind of heard the initial feedback, then you clarify. She, this this one I think is a very interesting. She says it's really uncommon for an idea to be a good idea right off the bat, that you need to give ideas a chance to, to bake um, before you kill them. So you can imagine kind of a brainstorming session you throwing ideas out there most of your ideas are bad the idea that's going to turn out to be the winning idea may initially be a bad idea right it's ideas need to evolve over time um so you don't want to kill it too quick and this is why she encourages this process to let things kind of more slowly move so you try to clarify and this actually matches matches popper's statements about making your ideas sharp, trying to really word them well. So you spend some time trying to figure out how do I help clarify this idea to people and make it easy to understand. Then you open it for debate. Now she mentions the problem with debate is, is that it could go on forever. So you, you give like a due date for the debate, right? We're going to debate this for one week or something like that. And you get everybody to open up and give um, debate on how this idea or change or whatever it is you're looking to do is going to be implemented. And you even create an obligation for dissent. If there's no dissent, then you, you find someone and you make them the dissenter so that there's someone who's arguing against it. So that there's an actual debate going on. Then you decide, and she, she mentions that with decisions, you try not to have the manager make the decision. You want to empower the people closest to the facts To make the decision, so you have to specify who it is that's going to make the decision and by what date. Um, Then you use persuasion. Once the decision's been made, you come up with how you're going to persuade the team that this is the right decision. You know, how are you going to present it? Maybe you have a meeting and you're going to go through and talk about why it's a good idea, things like that. Then you actually execute it. And she says you have to make time to execute it. You have to actually um, come up with oh, we're gonna spend this time doing this to make sure that this gets implemented. Then you learn from the implementation and then you repeat the whole process. Um, And you do this over and over again as you maybe that initial implementation has some problems, you need to now solve those problems, you repeat the process to solve the problems. So uh, what are your thoughts on this part for this process here?
1: Yeah. So if I uh, pick some of them, so to clarify, indeed, that, that's important. Eh? Um, half-baked ideas um, should get the chance to evolve. Um, but I think it's, it's still gently put here. Um, I think they need much more evolution to become or to ever become something very po- powerful. Depends, obviously, on the problem you're solving. This sounds a little bit um, what you do in let's say weekly stand-up meetings where you have a very short horizon uh, for deciding what to do and and coming up with a list of actions. And then of course, you you don't have to bake um, an idea of of one single action for hours and hours, but ideas may be much broader. They they may involve or they may purport to problems that are much broader than just um, identifying the key actions to be taken in the next week. Um, If they're broader and if they purport to um, broader problems, deeper problems, obviously you will have to have much more evolution on a single ID or the first version of the ID. Um, but I, I think this is more like a process which you run in, in, in short stacked meetings, uh, which you do every week and where basically the, the, the problem you're solving is, you know, what what are the key actions for this week? And then I think it's OK to have a short round of clarification because then you can eliminate some of the actions or refine them or complement them uh, without going too deep and too long into you know, the evolution. But it depends on what the question is that you want to solve in those meetings. Uh, but clearly, you know, important step uh, clarification. And the other thing I wanted to mention is on the debate. Uh, indeed, as you mentioned, um, it's it's a little bit open in the way it's phrased here. Um, the question, of course, is what kind of debate? What is the goal of debate? Um, it's, I guess, about um, seeking criticism or or identifying... Potential improvements in some of the IDs. Um, and so that's important that the, that the debate is also a little bit focused on can we improve um, the IDs? Can we find errors in it? Um, and then one of the criteria, which I wanted to mention on, on some of the earlier slides, but it's, it's basically the, the definition of criticism or, or the definition of debate that is aimed at criticism. You, you, you have to seek for errors uh, in certain IDs, but um, IDs that solve a certain uh, problem, obviously, as always. And the, and the criticism should always contain an explanation for why um, there is an error and to what extent it makes the solution worse. And the solution worse in terms of how is the company worse off? um and that's that's really important to to have like a focus or a definition of um of of criticism um if if you criticize an id you have to have an explanation for why the id in its current version is not going to make the company better off it's not going to yield an improvement at, at company level so if I'm giving a silly example, maybe here on, uh, let's say we are a team in a company and, and you've produced these slides, um, for our meeting. Um, I could criticize in the following way saying, yeah, I like the slides, but I would prefer you write them in blue. Um, because I prefer blue, uh, in terms of color now. That is that is criticism that you should roll out uh, right away because I don't provide an explanation for why the color blue would improve whatever we're doing here. I'm just expressing like a criticism um, which is not on you personally, Bruce. So it's already it's already content-related criticism, but it doesn't relate any way or anyhow to improving something at the level of the team or at the level of the organization of the company. I do not have an explanation for that. Um, And if you use that as a criterion for debating or for seeking criticism, you can rule out already a significant amount of criticism that is being brought forward, which is not personal, which is content related, but doesn't contain an explanation for Why after this criticism, the company is better off or the team is better off or the success is improved and all those kinds of things. So I think you need to have um, a a clear view on what do you mean with criticism? What kind of criticism do you rule out? And if you um, detect errors, your criticism has to contain an explanation for why with that criticism, you know, collectively we're better off.
0: Interesting. I I like that. The idea that we can eliminate certain types of criticisms because they need to contain an explanation for how this actually affects the business. Cameo, what are your thoughts?
2: Um, I, you know, I, I really like the half baked ideas and thinking through those, you know, we've been using um, design sprint methodology for, for a while and some of this really, feeds into the kinds of things that we utilize that I feel like help push us to decisions really quickly when we're doing kind of uh, immersive workshops. We, we time box everything. We time box every decision. And during the courses of those decisions, we're pushing hard for debate. We want people poking holes in ideas um, and, you know, criticizing concepts, not criticizing people. But um, know, driving people to have really healthy, um, but also really challenging debates, challenge other people's um assumptions because I think so positively that is the way to get things done is is to kind of try and tear ideas apart and then have a point that you're that you're trying to put them back together. Um the decide thing is a little bit um interesting because I think as a leader sometimes it can be hard to let people decide. And I, I hopefully won't sound egotistical, but sometimes I don't necessarily want people to decide. Sometimes um, I think the person who has to own the outcome might need to decide. And you know, it's in this context when she's talking about getting things done, I think it 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 is important to give the people who are closest to the facts the ability to decide on the way that they're going to, to fix things or deal with things but you know when we do workshops we require a decider to be in the room and typically the decider decider is some sort of an upper manager who ultimately is going to be the person who is responsible for the pnl or is responsible for you know they're the person who's ultimately their their head's going to swing um and i kind of a, a like making that person be the one that that decides because there's Kind of a beauty in acknowledging that that there is a, a person who's ultimately going to have to be accountable for the decisions and the outcomes of a team. Um, anyway, those are those are my thoughts.
0: You know, I, I have to agree with you on that. I, I, I I've been in your design sprints, and I, I know what you're talking about here. But this is this is a common principle of trying to get the decider into the room, because otherwise you'll end up humming humming hawing, hawing for a very long period of time if you have a non decider as they try to take things back, they're not even, they're just relaying information to the person who's going to make the decision. Right. Right. And you can actually destroy a project that way in software. You can actually have the project go off the rails for no reason other than decisions can't get made. And it's so it's probably
2: to- one of the most common ways that projects get derailed yes. because decisions cannot be made. Um, and it's partially because sometimes people, it, the word empower people um, it's not actually easy to be a decider. Um, you 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 have to be willing to be the person who takes the risk upon yourself. And a lot of times, when you have a group of collaborative people, you may see people shying away from making decisions, whether because they don't want to be accountable for the decisions, or maybe just because they don't feel feel like they have the right. Not, you know I don't. It's hard to empower people to get them to the point
0: um, that they can choose to own decisions yeah hey bart i was listening to your pactify uh podcast and all three of us mentioned kind of this idea of the half-bake idea and there seems to be joint interest on this you had a podcast episode where you likened um einstein's original idea and how it evolved over time could you maybe explain that a little i think that's an interesting related concept here
1: Yes, I, I thought about that example because I'm, I'm doing this uh, podcast about business subjects, but I was thinking about the history of how general relativity was developed uh, to really illustrate this baking process um, by, by showing um, that, that it, took actually, it took him eight years from his initial ID. So the, in his first guess, uh, he called it uh, the happiest uh, thought of his life. Uh, which he had in 1907. So two ty- two years after he published uh, Special Relativity, he started thinking about gravity. And and, and into, in 1907, he had what he called uh, the happiest thought of his life. And I consider that as, I, I guess, the starting idea for the whole evolution uh, into what eventually became his theory of gravity, which he published in 1915. So from his first idea, um, up until the final publication of his Field Equations in uh, 1915, he took eight years. um, And I don't know the exact history, but I can uh, imagine that he worked quite full time on his theory uh, for eight years. Therefore, he probably had other stuff going around as well in his uh, scientific work. But I think pretty much the, the full eight years uh, were were uh, focused on developing general relativity, so you could imagine how many iterations and how many evolve evolutions his initial idea must have had um, over those eight years, and it's and it's only the final version, the the field equations, the um, the equations for gravity of of Einstein, that that are eventually the ones that um, have all the explanatory power and prediction power and everything. And so um, before the eight years, maybe even, you know, six months before finishing, he was still not there. And and, and maybe it could have still failed. Um, and maybe he had a crucial um, var- variation on his ideas the last six months. I don't know. But the, the thing that is fascinating is that it must have been a very intensive effort with um, a, an extremely high uh, number of variations on the the various ideas that he had to come after eight years, and and also a lot of mistakes, a lot of error corrections, um, before coming eventually to his masterpiece uh, in 1915. So obviously in companies, we don't have all that time, but it illustrates that, um, yeah, to to get to any kind of powerful idea, um, it it requires for sure um, multiple iterations and significant evolution, um, compared to the first version of the ID, and typically also you don 't recognize even the first version of the ID uh, when you look at the final theory
0: interesting it, it 's also interesting that the reverse happened with Einstein, so after he came up with general relativity, became this world famous scientist, he wanted to figure out he, he helped create quantum mechanics also, um, and he wanted to figure out a way to merge general relativity with quantum mechanics. So he did the same thing. He had an idea. He started to pursue it. And he ended up dying before finishing the idea. But in retrospect, we know that he was on the wrong track altogether, that it was never going to develop the direction he was going. Um, so you can see kind of a the trade-off that has to be made here between you don't want to kill the idea when it's still just a bad idea and it, its evolution may turn it into a good idea, but you, you don't want to keep pursuing an idea that's not bearing fruit either. Um, and you want to discard them and move on. That's the idea of putting a, a due date on a debate. Um,
1: yeah.
0: Samuel, There, uh,
1: Pop- oh, sorry. Go ahead. Maybe quick. Um, there Popper says that as long as you're making progress, you should continue the evolution. But obviously then the question is, you know what is the level of progress that is sufficiently high to to continue evolution and you may be misled uh, in that assessment but indeed in as long as you're making progress and you're contributing to a solution that solves the problem don't stop evolving i would say
0: all right this is probably a good stopping point um we'll 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 pick up next next time and we'll finish up radical candor and um then move on and maybe talk some more about some of the ideas that that i know Bart teaches as part of uh, what he does. Uh, so thank you guys for for coming. Uh, this has been a great conversation.
1: Thanks a lot. It was great fun.
2: I always enjoy it. So thank you.